What is going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of the Christian Hansen Show podcast. I'm your host, Christian Hansen. Episode 29, today's guest is comedian and director, writer, Mike Young. Mike's been doing stand-up for 20-plus years. He's toured with Dave Chappelle, Sebastian Maniscalco, Bob Saget, Joe Rogan. He's also directed two feature films, My Man is a Loser, which starred John Stamos, Brian Callen and Michael Rappaport, and he directed A Stand-Up Guy. Mike has also hosted a few podcasts over the years and has been featured on many podcasts as well, including most recently The Bill Burt Show, hosted by Bill Burr and Burt Kreischer. He was on the show today and it was great. Um, We talked about life growing up in Detroit, uh, stand-up comedy beginning, how he started. The dude started stand-up comedy. Usually you would think you started an open mic in a small town, you know, cut your teeth, you know, in the little small hometown, wherever you grew up. No, his first open mic was at the comedy store. Um, that's insane. So like the first time he's ever even attempted it, like he, he wouldn't even go to a, it was the comedy store. The first ever attempt at live comedy was there. So um, very early on, he uh, had the realization and understanding that this is what he wanted to do. And, uh, I mean, that, that caught me by surprise. That's insane. Um, to have the balls and courage to do it at literally the capital of comedy in this country, um, at the comedy store is insane. Um, something I didn't know about him that I found out in the interview was, uh, how Rogan really was the one who kind of gave him a platform, you know, boosted his, his name, his brand as Mike Young, the comedian, um, when he supported Rogan on, you know, a, a comedy tour. I mean, he was playing the House of Blues in Vegas, 2,500 people the next night, 800, 900. I mean, he he toured with Rogan right around the same time that Rogan was doing Fear Factor. So um, I, I didn't know that. And that was pretty cool. I mean, uh, to have that opportunity is amazing. And uh, certainly, I mean, that was, that was a, a huge point in uh, boosting his career uh, as Mike Young the director and comedian that he is today, but uh, don't let that cloud the fact that Mike is one of the hardest workers in, in the business. I mean, he's directing movies, he's writing script, uh, he's doing stand-up. I mean, he's involved in so much. I don't know how he does it, but uh, according to him, it doesn't feel like work, which is good. I mean, that's what you're trying to achieve in life. Once it starts to feel like work, you start to have to question uh, what you're doing. Because that's no fun. If you don't enjoy what you're doing, um, why are you doing it, right? But uh, yeah, it was a great conversation with Mike. He was very kind, gave me quite a bit of his time. For someone as busy as him, uh, we talked for pretty much an hour. This is me talking to Mike Young. Enjoy. What's going on, man? What's up, buddy? Not much. How you doing? I'm doing well. How you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, I appreciate you doing this. No problem, bro. Thanks for asking me. Yeah, no. Do you get, I mean, I, I'm surprised, like, I don't know how you don't have, like, a bigger social media. Not like that fucking matters, but I'm just saying, no, like. believe me, I surprised myself. You almost, you almost have to try to not have as big a social media. Like, it's just been something that I've never put a ton of effort into, which just I just always working, just working, just working. I'm just working, bro. So like, I, I should probably hire somebody, 
And anytime I've hired anybody, I mean, we can get into all that. Whenever <laughs> you but it's, it's a whole thing. And I appreciate you realizing that I don't have the social media that I should. I mean, it doesn't matter about that stuff, but I'm just saying like, you bust your ass. You would, you know, I mean, that just, it just shows you though. I mean, work, working harder is much more important than, uh, getting, getting that file. Yeah, exactly. It's crazy. I I, I was thinking about that the other day. I'm like, you know what? We, we need more leaders. (laughs) (laughs) We don't need more followers. That's the problem. We got a lot of freaking followers. Like everyone's seen it for followers. It's like, yo bro, you need some leaders. Right. You might have a million followers, that but don't you're mean shit. Whack. You're not making any mo- movies. You're not made writing anything. Like, yeah, yeah, you got seven million followers, but what do you want me to tell you? Like, exactly. I don't want to be you. Right. And that's. And by the way, maybe I missed the boat on the social media thing. Like, I'm just. But I only have so much bandwidth in my brain. So, like, if I'm, <laughs> if I'm working on something. I don't have like the the energy to right. try to get followers. Like, now I could go pay for them. Like a lot of people do. I could go. That's like, ridiculous. You know, though. pay for them. But like, like you're what? fake. That'd be phony. Like, I mean, well, see, that's the thing. I feel like in society, like we, we value that more than we do conversation, which is crazy. I think, and I could be wrong, but I honestly, I think a conversation is going to make a, a big return. And I think all this social media follower, this, and because they're starting to realize that like the companies that pay the followers to yeah. post things for them, they're not really seeing a big return on their money, right? Mm-hmm. Like somebody with 3 million followers says, you got to wear, you know, you got to drink Essentia. And then Essentia goes, well, we didn't really get any more people drinking since that person said that. Right. I really think the influencer thing is like overrated. And it's funny because not for a spoiler alert, but like in my new movie, I actually go off on like an influencer. Yeah. And I don't have any beef with influencers. I just have beef beef with the concept of like all your energy is not into making something great. Right. All your energy is going into how can I get more follower, more follower, more follower, more follower. Like, you know, I don't want to sound like the old guy at the club, but like I'm not. No, it's real. it's real. It's real. It's I'm real. I'm just trying to create good stuff. And keep working, man. That's great. You no, know? that's I let other people do the talking. Yeah, no, that's you great. know it is crazy though because it's like I like my little sister. Before I get into talking about the other stuff that I want to talk about, it's like you know you have these kids and it pisses me off. I mean, they could be sitting in their college dorm one day, post a TikTok, and you know what? Now they have they got endorsements, they got sponsorships. I'm like, what am I doing wrong in my life? What have I? What am I not doing? Should should I do TikTok? Like I don't. <laughs> No, you're focusing on the stuff that you like and enjoy and that you're good at. Yeah. And you you can't even, it doesn't even, you, it's a waste of energy to get mad at them. You know sure. what I mean? To get mad about it. And like, if it lasts, great. Usually it doesn't last a right. long time. You know, you could get a couple, you know, maybe make a grip, a grip of money in a year that you're big at that. But I don't know, man. I did, I wrote a TV show for an influencer once mm-hmm. and she's super nice and like a super nice person. And she's got like 15 million and everybody's like, yo, she's killing it. Da, da, da. But like, I don't know, man, maybe she's like hiding her money or saving her money. But right. I basically was paying for the Uber and like had to pick up, the, <laughs> you know, like I didn't see the millions, but maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Bro. It's crazy. It's crazy. I, you can only focus on so much as a creative head. And I just try to do what I do. Write That's jokes, right. do some movie stuff, 
you know, get a special out there, write comedy and hope I let other people talk. Like, it's funny because I named my special who the F is Mike Young <laughs> because like Bobby Lee was talking smack about me in a fun way. Like on his podcast, Theo and Whitney Cummings were talking about me and all these people are talking about me, but I'm never on their podcast. <laughs> like they've never asked me and I don't even, I'm not mad at them. No. But I'm saying like they never asked me to be on their podcast. So it's like, I'm just going to name and I'll get all these messages in my inbox. Like, are you the Mike Young that Bobby Lee said took him to meet a prostitute at a motel? <laughs> and then are you the Mike Young that like Whitney said she was yelling at one night at the comedy store? And I was like, who the F is Mike Young is what they're basically saying. So that's like, perfect. Yeah. yeah. That's great. No, that's so, great. Now you're you're in Detroit right now, right? Yeah. You are. You, now you you I thought you you live in LA though, right? Or no? I live in LA, but I left May 5th. Mm. Riots were breaking out. Oh shit! Yeah, everything was going down. I just got in my car with a friend and drove across. Oh, the you country. drove? Yeah. So it's like I driving drove. through a zombie. It's just like people nuts, everywhere. But honestly, it was a great drive. We drove across country, had fun in Denver, Arizona, I, even Iowa, like Chicago. The protest followed you, though. Yeah, the protest came right to me. Yeah, it came right to me. But no, the protests and the riots broke out in front of my building in West Hollywood the day I left. I left at 10. They were rioting at noon. Stuff breaking? No, breaking, tear gas. Oh, yeah, bro. Everything was going on. Oh, my gosh. It was nuts. It was nuts. And so my timing was great as far as leaving goes. But yeah, man, I I got out of town. Mm -hmm. And I came home to where my mom lives. And I'm I'm right here. I'm in my mom's basement right now. Just chilling with the workout. That's great. That is great. Yeah, and I didn't go back to LA yet, so I'll go back like next week. And it turns out I have a job to do in Detroit that's like a four-month project. Oh wow! I'm actually going to send some stuff home from LA, and I'm going to come back to Detroit, and price I'll probably spend a full year here. Oh wow! When's the last time you've done that? Eighteen years. I haven't. I mean, I've never really been that long. I've been in LA the whole time. Yeah, I mean, you've been 18 years, you've been comedy, so it's been about all your comedy basically been out there. You've been doing it for what, 20 plus years now? Probably 20 years, going, yeah, like 19, 20 wow. years, I would say. Like, I never say that I would, I always think of myself as starting as a comedian. Mm-hmm. When my ex, when my ex girlfriend said to me one day, she's like, You say that you're a comedian, but you're not even serious about it. If you were serious about it, you'd be at the comedy store every night. And from that moment, I'm not even kidding. I was at the comedy store every <laughs> night. And that was about 18, 19 years Scared ago. Scared you? I, she just was being real. She's yeah. like, yo, you, you're not, you're, you're saying that you're, you want to be a comedian, but if you really want to be it, you got to dive in head first. And so I really dove in, but I started comedy yeah, at the comedy store, never in Detroit. That was the first time. That, so that's, that's crazy. Cause that's what I wanted to ask. I mean, usually you cut your teeth in the home circuit, but you, your first go at it was at the comedy store yep stand Sunday at the comedy store bro i i was always watching stand up in college and i was like kind of envious and watching dudes and i'd be like i know i'm gonna do this one day but i don't know when and then out of college i got to la and i was like i'm still gonna do this i just don't know when i already had written a ton of comedy even in high school i was thinking i knew i'd be a comedian i just was so scared for so long that it wasn't until I got to LA and I was like, that's it. I'm going to the comedy store, the world famous place on Sundays. And I'm doing open mic every Sunday for three minutes, five minutes until I get passed as a, as a regular. 
And then obviously I was doing, you know, every open mic in LA, right. basement of Ramada Inn, everywhere you wow. can imagine, you know, bars, restaurants, you know, strip clubs, everywhere we could do it. That's everywhere. insane. So, you yeah. know, that brings me to something that I wanted to ask then. I mean, because I was going to ask, but you totally surprised me with, with that bit right there, knowing that that was the first place you actually did it at. But in, in school then, growing up, I mean, were you... Were, were you, given the fact of all the stuff that you're involved in, uh, directing, writing, uh, comedy, were you then, were you not like a class clown man in school growing up? Were you really focused on the education in itself? I mean, because of the fact that you're involved in so many different things, it didn't seem like you were kind of the one putting yourself out out there and kind of being a jackass. It looked like you were really locked down and loaded uh, about learning and education growing up. Or, was, or am I wrong? You're 100% wrong. Really? I was a full class clown. How does someone like that become writer, director? <laughs> no, no, you're not. You're not a hundred percent wrong. I was really good in English. I was uh, really good. I was go. really good, and I loved writing. But I was a crazy class clown, which was I wasn't like a goofy class clown. Right. I just had one one liners. Yeah. Every time to the point where kids were like, "You should be a comedian," because I would just fire on all my teachers. And always end up in detention. So I was a class clown, <laughs> but I'd be lying if I said that I was locked in as a student. You know mm. what I mean? I wasn't a terrible student, but I only was good at what I liked or what I was good at. And mm-hmm. I, I loved English. I loved creative writing. And I was a, I was a class clown. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I got into writing directing through stand-up. But as I was doing stand-up, I was always going home at night working on scripts. Oh, I wow. always loved writing stories, short stories. And I was working on screenplays the whole time that I was working on standup. And it was just like another extension of like the comedy muscle or the mm-hmm. writing muscle. So, wow. yeah, man, I had a, yeah, I, I, I wasn't a great, even though I did get into college and I did graduate from university of Arizona, Oh wow! but I, I locked in on my writing courses and that was about it. I, I wasn't a good focused student but i had crazy discipline like as a performer and a writer like, mm. even when i had a regular job in la i'd come home every night and work on a screenplay and my act wow so it's just discipline is all is everything with this thing man sure you got to have obviously you got to have the talent but you got to have the discipline Absolutely. Without, you got nothing wow you got nothing. That's crazy. So, holy cow, that's that's insane. And now I know growing up um, in Detroit, stuff like that. You grew up. You had a brother too, right? Just a brother. Anyone else? Little brother. Yeah, I got a little brother. He's two years younger, and he's in the um, he is in the insurance restoration game. So, like a big, yeah, he's putting out floods and fires and hurricanes all over the earth. Sounds like a superhero. He is a superhero. That's awesome. He is. That's great. Like the hurricane goes and hits a a nursing home community. My brother and his crew go in and make sure everybody's okay. That's great. They they rebuild people's lives. That's great. You guys close growing up? Real close. That's good. It's funny, man. I'll give you a quick like name drop go story. So, Toby McGuire and I are friends and we've oh, been okay. friends for years. And so Toby and I sold a show to ABC back in the day, like maybe 10 years ago. He was my executive producer based on my life, blah, blah, blah. But the executives at Toby's company they loved my brother and what he did. And they kept <laughs> calling him and being like, we need to do a show with you. Like we want to do like a reality show where you go around and like you fix people's lives. And they never really got it fully together. But like, yes, my brother's a little He's super- actually doing that though now. 
Well, no, yeah, he, he <laughs> my brother was doing, he's been in restoration for 15, for 20 years. Mm-hmm. But when they met him in LA and he told him what, the, what he did, they were like, yo, we want to do a reality show with, with you, with my brother. And it was called Young and Sons. And if you look up, there's a picture of Toby playing poker. And I'll he's have got to check it out. Son, oh my God. It's really funny. It's really funny. That's so, crazy. That's crazy. Yeah, you and your dad were close too, obviously. I, I listened to some of the, the Bert and, uh, um, the, the Bill and Bert show, uh, on that. Um, interesting, yeah, that was, uh, interesting work. Right yeah. You know what? And, uh, the, the reason, another reason why I really reach out to you is because there's so many similarities with your story and your dad and my story and my dad. Um, yeah. it was, uh, trade, big trade guy, always hands on tool and die. Um, close yeah. like this. I'm like, okay, this dude, there's something there. There were so many parallels. I'm like, I really want to talk to him and pick his brain about that. But what was the uh, what was so uh, inspirational and influenceable, if that's a word, about uh, about his upbringing and your your parental upbringing that's kind of molded you into who you are today? That's a great question. I would say that my dad was my hero by example. Like mm. he was. He started out, I always, I always tell people, I watched him go through three tax brackets. You know, he was wow. low income, low income, always working, always putting in work every day, always hustling. Mm-hmm. Then he got to like middle-class income where he was, and he was very entrepreneurial. You know, my dad really throughout my life, I saw him maybe with four real jobs, you know, and I just watched him come up in the ranks of like, as a businessman, as an entrepreneur, the way he moved in the world, he got along with like upper world, upper crust, wealthy, wealthy people. And he really vibed with like lower class, lower income people. And he never judged anybody. And he treated everybody along the way with respect. And he looked at the dude who fixes your engine the same way he looked at the CEO of the company he was doing business with. And everyone he came in contact with could feel that. And so my dad just like got love from like all aspects of the community. And by the time his funeral, there was like 1,500 people at his funeral, standing room only. And you're going, this guy, he wasn't famous. He wasn't like a pro athlete or a famous person. He was just a neighborhood guy who touched so many people by the way he treated them. Mm. And I sat back and I was like, I don't care what I do in life. Just like, that's what, that's the goal. Yeah. Just treat everybody with respect, be a man of your word, make a living. However, you know, don't take no for an answer, be an entrepreneurial spirit. My dad wasn't educated. He didn't go to college. He he played football at Arizona state for like a week and then came home back to Detroit, you know, started in like a, you know, I think I told the story on Bert and Bill, but he, he was working like at an all men's health club when he was 30 years old, oh, wow. that was like the mob headquarters of Detroit. Oh, Jesus. And he, yo, and he was like, just like a towel boy slash made sure the place was open and closed at the right time. He was made sure the place was running properly. He taught racquetball. And then he went into like scrap metal right. later on and scrap metal business. He just had a dump truck. He was a scrap peddler but he turned this little dump truck situation into like a big business business, and he made a great living for himself and he fed his family, put us through college and unfortunately didn't get enough life, you know, to Mm. enjoy it himself. But I just learned every lesson I needed from him. And that's why I always 
that's why when I came to Hollywood, even if I became friends with like famous people, it never shook me because to me, that was what you strive to be. Like absolutely. That was. Yeah. No, so absolutely, you know, man. You know, these guys. Yeah, no, that's you great. Know cool. Yeah. 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 So the thing is that is obviously I mean, having that thing and leaving the only place you would ever call home, really, to go out to L.A., what was the hardest part about that? I mean, given the fact that your dad is had had that mindset it sounded like he was super supportive of that decision then totally he was beyond supportive he actually was like <clears throat> excuse me he, he would always he would always say do what you want like follow your dream do don't you don't have to follow me forget the scrap metal business they're always trying to pinch me for a dollar for a nickel for a penny you know find something you love and just be great at it he literally would pump that into me and my brother all the time and just tell us like just do what makes you happy which was so crazy because I even like I ended up writing a bit about it. I was like, it's harder to make it when you have a supportive parent than you do when you have someone that thinks you can't make it, <laughs> right? Because if somebody thinks you can't make it, all your energy is like into proving them wrong, right? But when your parents are supportive, you're like, oh damn, man, I, I wish you didn't it. believe in me. Like this, I it really, gotta I gotta do it. I gotta do it because if he believes it, I gotta believe it. So he was supportive, man, and he 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 was just somebody that just got it. Mm -hmm. He got people, you know, he just got people. And, you know, that's like a gift that he was born with. And hopefully I got a little bit of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's what I try to do. Just respect people and work hard. Sure. And when, and as you move on in this business and even in anything, you end up looking back and you go, the most fun stuff was when you worked hard. Mm -hmm. The grind is the fun thing, right? The grind, like when I had like the young American comedy tour, yeah. whatever I Brian was like taking pictures, calling everyone for a photo shoot, trying to, you know, struggle to get like the, our gigs booked. Then when you're on and you're moving and you're getting successful with things, you kind of forget about the grind, but right. like the hustle and the grind is the fun of it. Absolutely. You know? That's crazy. So the thing that is interesting. So when you get that, get that move out to LA and you then start doing the comedy at the comedy store, at what point was there, did you have like this moment of clarity where you're like, Oh shit. Okay. I'm going to, I'm doing this. Like, was there, like, when did you yeah. fully start to go, okay, open mics are kind of fading gigs are landing. What was the, what, what was the time period between the start of open mics into the first paid gig? And, um, what was that journey like? Cause that's all self booking. I'm assuming a lot of comedians still self book themselves. What was yeah. the, what was that time period from open mic to first paid gig to, um, booking your first, you know, comedy tour per se yeah so i i feel like i was i was lucky i was doing the open mics at the comedy mm -hmm. store for like a year straight yeah simultaneously doing all the open mics in town i was growing fast as a comic and they were starting to take notice like at the comedy store and so within like two years i started to get noticed at the comedy store like from guys that were already doing well like joe rogan oh, and these other big names they were starting to come up to me like, dude, you're really funny, man. Like, I'm going to put you out down with me and, you know, get you on the road and do some gigs. So within three years of the comedy store, Joe Rogan actually came up to me, the first guy. And he was like, dude, I got a bunch of road gigs. He's like, if you want to no, go. Shit. Wow. And so within like three years or four years, maybe I, I'm not great with years, but mm -hmm. I was all of a sudden I am on the road with Joe Rogan when he's doing fear factor. Wow. And he's just, he's on the edge of UFC about to start his UFC mm -hmm. career. And 
I am playing in front of like the House of Blues in Vegas. You know Shit. what I mean? Improv. Like 2,500 people. 2,500, 600, 1,000 people. And Joe Rogan blessed me to take me on the road, which by the way, you do six, seven shows a week in front of that. Mm-hmm. You are, you start getting better and better and better and better. And so Joe was the first comic that really put me on the road and my act got better and better. And then the like the moment of clarity where I knew I'd be a comedian and I would have success at it was like right before Joe put me on the road. I, this sounds crazy, <laughs> but I was in the back of the comedy store and I was already crushing. I was doing some crushing sets, getting some compliments, but I was watching Damon Wayans. Oh boy. Who is a legendary, badass, incredible standup. And I'm watching Damon Wayans and I'm just watching him. And like this, like this, like calming warmth comes over my body. I swear to you. And I had this thought and I was like, his style is everything I emulate. Mm. His storytelling ability is a, is the lane I want to try to get in. And he is a super uber successful dude who probably makes like a million a year as a standup, if not more. I'm like, I already know in my mind, I could be a comedian and worst case scenario, I could just make a living. Like I didn't mm. have a number in my head, but in my mind, I was like, if he's doing this, I could get in that lane and at least be able to feed myself and like feed my family one day. And like this crazy warmth came over me and I was like, I'm going to be a comedian and forever. And then right after that, boom, Joe Rogan takes me on the road. I go on the road with Joe for like a year, year and a half. It was, I don't have to tell you, bro, it was beyond, you know, I'm in Vegas and I'm like, yeah, could I uh, get like a shot of tequila? They're like, what do you want to drink? I'm like, could I just get, get like a shot of tequila? They bring you a bottle of tequila. <laughs> you know, I got my own room that looks like, you know, van halen's room you know Jesus, what i mean Lord. i'm like living i told joe during that time i was like dude <clears throat> i owe you you know what i mean like i don't even know how to thank you for this like mm-hmm. it was so crazy for me because joe just blessed me and then from there i got better and better and then i started my own tour and then i was you know i, I went on the road and i opened for the likes of russell peters wow. i did 14, 14 shows with Chappelle. you know david tell I had a really cool manager that just like got me these great gigs and I had a beautiful school. I got schooled by like the best, mm-hmm. you know? That's and then crazy. it's funny because, you know, you go on this stand-up road and I'm on this road with everybody and, you know, we'll get into that whenever you're ready. But like when I started making movies, it took me out of the stand-up game for a minute because I didn't have the brain power to get off set and go to the stage. Like I just was spent. It was tough. It was- so- Exhausting. It's just it's impossible for yeah. me. You know, I, I just didn't have it. You get offset at eight at night. You think you got energy to go tell jokes. So for like five years, this period, mm. I just wasn't in the lane of stand-up, mm-hmm. which I always knew I'd be back in that lane and I'll never leave that lane. Right. But I love writing and directing movies. So I just, when I got in that lane, I stayed with it and I had to like get out of the rhythm of stand-up and all my boys that were on my tour, Sebastian, Bobby Lee, Tony rock, they all blew. Burt Kreischer was on my tour. Oh, wow. And they all blew up in their own rightful way. You know, they were all just started soaring mm-hmm. on their own. So that's crazy. You no, know, that's crazy. So when you, crazy road, bro. it is. So you took that, when you take that, that five years out though, was there like a real fear though inside? Like, Oh shit. I know I want to go back. I know I'm going to go back. But is it going to be, am I going to have to, you know, put in, you know, 5X work to get back to 
that level of um, not not notoriety. I mean, that's a stupid thing, but that level of work. Yeah. Yeah, there was a well, I wasn't writing new material. So Mm. like all the stuff that I had done was working. So when I came back to stand up, Mm -hmm. I was still doing that material. And by the way, I love that material because I put it to rest on my special but like, I love that material. And I was never one of those guys who's like, after two years or three years, you got to like, let those jokes die. I wasn't like that because most of my boys were doing specials. So yeah, they could retire that material. I had never done a special. Right. So to me, it was like, yo, yeah, I thought, you know, 10,000, a hundred thousand people have seen this, but millions haven't seen it. Right. So I'm not retiring my act. So I lacked for a few years in the writing category, mm-hmm. you know? I wasn't getting the spark of creativity in my standup the way I used to. Um, but once I got back into the standup lane and started even living more and just being more alive in mm-hmm. life, things start to, you know, then you start writing again. But I, 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 there was a definitely like a latent writing period for me in the standup world when I was writing more movie stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You know? Now I was, uh, I talked to a comedian, Mike Marino, um, not yeah. too, uh, what was a uh, gosh, it's been a month already. Shit, time flies. Um, and uh, I talked to him and I brought up Jeff Scott because actually him and Jeff were, were close during the pandemic. They would write back and forth because I guess Jeff was a collector. He collected all these different antiques, all these different memorabilia, and so did Mike. They would write back and forth. And that relationship, that was the relationship they had for you. I mean, getting your start there, obviously, um, with someone, I mean, you, you've grown to know that person and um when you found out about his passing and i didn't want to get over i wanted to mention that before we got onto other stuff since it was fresh what was so hard about um the news obviously and how special was he to you and uh getting you to where you are today jeff scott is is super special to Mm -hmm. me because he was the piano man when i started comedy Mm -hmm. and he was the piano guy last year when I was doing comedy and he played me on and off that stage a thousand times. I had my own special relationship with Jeff. We had moments of combativeness even because I had like, I had beef with a couple comics one time. And like <laughs> I, had a, I had like an issue with Mitzi had an issue with me for a moment in time. And Jeff even tried to play me off stage one time Ooh, boy. and we got into it. But Jeff Scott was like, devastating because he's he's part of the fabric of Mm -hmm. like why i became a comedian like i became a comedian not just to tell jokes not just to make people laugh i like the life Mm -hmm. like i like that fraternity of people the comedy store is the frat house regardless of what wave it goes through you Mm -hmm. know the no the no joe rogan empty phase or the super packed house you know joe's back phase i've been through both of them and throughout the whole thing, Jeff Scott was was with us. And it's a it's super tragic. And I hate that Jeff passed away. And I love Jeff. And he's, you know, he's part of the, he's just part of my journey as a stand-up comedian. And he always will be. And we talked every day that I was there. Mm-hmm. And that was it. You know, you when someone passes that's in in your fraternity like that, you always wish you could go back and say, damn, man, I should right. have like conversations with him i should have well you know i never really really got to know where jeff lived and how he lived and i didn't even know that jeff had like this history of doing Pee Wee herman in like broad off broadway theater until after he passed 
You know, I just knew him as the piano guy and shame on me for not digging into his life as someone who was in my life every single day. Mm -hmm. But that just shows that you get caught up in the world and you get, you know, caught up in your own stuff. Absolutely. Um, Yeah. Jeff Scott, bro. I love Jeff Scott. You know, that the comedy store will never, that's, it won't be the same. Mm -hmm. It'll go on. It'll keep you. But that is definitely a big, big chunk taken out right there. Yeah, that's crazy. The interesting thing is for me is uh, before I wanted to obviously talk about the, the films and stuff too, but was the uh, the diversity in uh, in some of the tours you've done on and for the people you support because I, I didn't know much about the Rogan part, but I now that you bring that up is I mean when you do that when you support him and then you move to support Chappelle, that's like uh, complete that's like tomato that's like apples and oranges. For that, for the uh, audience and the range and the people that you're, you know, you're doing the comedy to, what was so hard about, um, you know, adjusting to, to that, uh, to the group, the different groups, and did it did it affect the way you you performed up there? Was it harder to get a little bit more out of crowd A as it was crowd B, or was it? I mean, was it just the same? I always would hear old great comedians. I studied them and I would listen Mm -hmm. to them. They would always kind of talk about just do you, no matter what, like just stay on your course, do you, don't Mm -hmm. change for an audience. You can be flexible as to like what city you're in. You can like talk a little country, local stuff with the local, you know, if you're in Houston or whatever, Mm -hmm. but I always just did what I did and I never changed my act for either of those groups that I went with. Mm -hmm. And I think growing up outside Detroit like I did and growing up with, you know, black, white, Arab, Jewish people, Christian people, punk rockers, rockers, Mm. you know, like I had a real diverse upbringing. So I kind of could flow with any crowd. And I think that came off because my 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 act is about me. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, you know, I'm doing politics in a red state. And I'm getting beat up by Joe's people, you know, or I'm getting, you know, and, and I'm doing blue material in a, in a red state that right. loves him. You know, th- no politics with me. It's all personal. Mm-hmm. So I actually never changed my act with any comedian. That it's I you. For. It's me. And I, I even opened for Russell Peters. He had 4,000 Indian people coming out from the community. And when you're talking about relationships and friends, you know, and it's exes, universal. It's universal. Yeah, it really is, man. And that's why they say the more personal you get, the more universal you are. Right. You know, crazy. so that was always going to be my thing because I, it's funny because I learned early on and I did like voices early on. Like I could do like I imitated like Eddie Vedder, Mike Tyson, some singers. Really? In the early when I first started, I would hide behind some imitations, even though I was doing personal stuff. But I remember having this great weird thought of like, if I don't start doing my personal material, I'm actually going to get depressed because there was like this empty feeling of doing like imitation type stuff. Even though, even though they would crush mm-hmm. and I'd rock a crowd, I would go off stage feeling kind of empty. And I remember having like the conscious thought of like, I, I can't do this for 20 years mm. because I will be depressed if I'm just doing Eddie Vedder. Yeah. And I'm, even if I'm rocking it, making money, it's my soul's gone. So I went quickly into more, you know, universal, personal truths and stuck with it and just drew from my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't think you could do that for 20 years either if you just stuck with the whole invitations. There's no way. I mean, I don't know if people have been able to do that. 
There is a market for it, man. There is a market for impersonators. You're always going to get a guy who could do a hundred of them on a cruise ship. You know what I mean? A cruise ship is always going to hire a guy. And by the way, I don't even knock them because maybe the guy is like like a genius computer scientist mm-hmm. at nighttime or at another in the daytime, I mean. And maybe this is just what he loves and maybe it fills his soul mm-hmm. to do, to imitate people. But like I was in one of these clubhouse rooms the other day and the guy, he's still doing imitations of Don Knotts. Now, Don Knotts is a legend, no doubt, but he's also 98 years old if he's even alive, which I don't think he is. But I couldn't personally keep doing imitations because it, I could do them once in a while, but mm-hmm. I had to get personal in my act because I realized it's an art form. And even I saw Chappelle one time on stage say, I dropped myself in the middle of every act. Mm. You don't say that. And so, you know, I've just tried to tried to just do quality work, man. That's sure. all my mind is on, is trying mm-hmm. to do quality work. Now, have you done a cruise? Because you mentioned the cruise thing. Those are kind of interesting from what I hear. Like, I saw an interview that Nate Bargatze did where he goes, cruises are weird because sometimes you get told, I guess, you have to change um, what you usually do because there's kids on cruises where you have to clean up some of the stuff, but you're doing shows. You could be doing shows, you know, five straight days. After a while, it's like, well, I have, what else do I do? Like, there's nothing else. But for you, being everything true to you, everything is your life experiences. Did you ever run into any issues on cruises or was it smooth sailing for you um, if you did do any cruises over the years? I haven't done any cruises. Really? But I've done a bunch of corporate gigs that I've bombed at. Really? Not bombed at, but I've been in front of like, a group of church going really nice people who Mm -hmm. didn't understand my Detroit vibe or, you know, I've done like gigs where I don't do great in front of like an uppity uptight, super clean crowd. And I'm not dirty at all. I'm edgy, but I'm not dirty. And, but I don't, there's been a couple corporate gigs where they looked at me like I was like, a bank robber. Like, yeah. Just like this dude is just, he's lived a life that we don't even understand. So there is like a sect of people that aren't going to feel me for sure, mm-hmm. but that's fine. I, you know, but I, I've definitely not done well in certain corporate environments, you know, mm-hmm. but others I've done great. Other right. functions I've done great. So you're not going to, you're not going to kill them all, but I haven't done any cruises. Yeah. By the way, Growing up wanting to be a comedian, part of your dream is like, I want to do a cruise. I want to do like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like what comedy is. You're like, in your mind, you're like, I want to do a cruise. I want to do Vegas. I want to do all the things I saw as a kid that comedians do. Mm. And so I have not done a cruise and I got friends that, I have friends that do them. And some of them love that life. It's a great paycheck for them. It's consistent for them. You know, I don't want to get seasick. Oh, I'm, I, uh, I'm paranoid. You know, I can't. No way. Too many people in a closed environment. Oh, yeah. I, just keep me out of a cruise. Mm. I, I don't even know if I like taking cruises anymore. You know? I've never been on one, but I want to go on one. Something about being in the middle of a water, way too far away yeah. from land. Like, you can't be like, I'm going to jump. I want to escape. You can't even escape. Like, you're, you're there. You're going nowhere. Yeah. So that's yeah. that's the part about <laughs> it that I, I can't. I don't know. Just, ugh, it's just scary. Now, I know you did, you did two feature films. How did... Uh, um, the directorial position get brought up and pitched to you. Um, I mean, where did when did that opportunity come to you? 
Um, and was it was it something that was an immediate sure let's go, or was it something that kind of you let marinate and you kind of weighed your options and decided, eh, and then then you made the decision, or was it something that boom you took it right away? It was something that I knew I could do and that I wanted to do. I had to convince the producers to let me do it. Oh wow! So okay. the first. Yeah, I knew I could do it. I knew I wanted to do it. Uh, I've been around enough sets. I've been around enough directors. I shadowed people who had directed before. I knew I, and so my first directing job was on My Man is a Loser Mm -hmm. uh, with, you know, Brian Cowan. Stamos. Stamos, yeah. And so I wrote the movie for these producers and I thought maybe that was it. They just hired me to write the movie. They were going to go look for a director. And so after I turned in the script and they really liked it, they said, we're going to make this movie. And now we're actively going to look for a director. Immediately. (laughs) I thought that's exactly what I did. I I wrote it. Let me do this. I said to them, 100% I could do this. I know the ins and the outs of every scene. I know the rhythm, the beats. I sold them on it. And then I had a couple of my friends who were kind of like successful in the business Mm -hmm put in phone calls for me to the producers and say, yo, Mike could do this, give him a shot. And so they let me do it and I was off and running. And man, when I tell you, I learned so much cause I didn't, there was so much I didn't, didn't know. know. It was beyond, it's, it's, it's mind blowing because it wasn't a small movie. It was a $5 million that movie. That was a big, big budget, big, big, big movie, man. Yeah, to, it's an independent movie cause it was outside the studio but it was still a lot of money that they spent. And like, I'll never forget just like walking into the production offices as the director. I almost put myself in a different mind frame. Like I was somebody else. I walk in, there's like seven offices. The prop people are here. The design people are here. You know, the, the art, the, the art directors here, the grippers, the grips are here. And day one, everybody's got questions for you as the director. And I'm thinking, oh, it's time to really start answering questions. And I can't even say fake it because I knew the script so well. Mm -hmm. But like everything down to like, how does our third lead dress in a summertime backyard scene? Oh my gosh. You had to answer all those? You answer everything. You're, you you go to the heads of every department, and obviously you trust your department heads. Oh, sure, obviously. Like you're making the last call on everything, and so directing a movie to me, and I've only done I've directed two. two. About, yeah. I'm going to direct my third. I wrote another one that's out there that I didn't direct, but it is a physical job, man. And I, bro. When it was over, I lost 25 pounds. I looked homeless. I was pale as a ghost. There's a picture of me with like a garbage bag over my shoulder coming out of a New York subway because like for some reason my clothes were in there. Oh God. And it just says everything about after you're done directing a movie. Oh boy. But it was a beautiful experience. <clears throat> Stamos, Rappaport, and Callen like really kind of had my back as mm-hmm. far as my lead actors. You know, they knew it was my first time. I didn't even know that you changed a lens on a camera. I thought oh, that you really? could zoom in. I was like, yo, now make sure you zoom in on Stamos. He's like, uh, you don't zoom. Uh, this is a half a million dollar camera, bro. We, we changed the lens. There's no zooming. Wow. So this was really all new to you. like All new. Oh, all shit. New. But I knew the comedy of it. I knew every word of it. Mm-hmm. And I knew every piece of the character. So the actors were down with me. 
I just had to learn my visual. I had to learn about visual style and it's really a visual, obviously a visual medium. Mm -hmm. So the craziest was it was such a heavy load on the first movie. When I did my second movie, I was flying through it. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't even realize how much I learned and you just really through osmosis and through, through doing it, it is like the greatest education you could ever have Jesus. in a short period of time. That's crazy. So when did, yeah. When I did a stand up guy, I was just like, stop, cut action, hold, say this, you know what I mean? I wasn't timid anymore and I just got it rolling and yeah, man, it was a, it was an incredible experience and I sold the producers on letting me do it. And it changed my life because oh, sure. it gave me a lane where people, you know, the producers of a stand-up guy, they were at the premiere of My Man is a Loser. They were like, yo, bro, we really like your movie. We want you to do a movie. I'm like, ha, this is how easy this is. <laughs> you just keep getting jobs after a job. I'm like, ha, you know. This is great. Yeah. And so it doesn't work like that. No. But I was lucky after My Man is a Loser to do a stand-up You put guy. in the work. I put in the work, right. bro. And everyone's always like, you work so hard. I work, smart. I do work hard, work but smart, I just not like, harder. this is the work that I love. Mm. So I don't feel like I work so hard. Mm. I just feel like I put in the work that I like to do, mm. you know? And listen, man, people have made way more movies than me. My dream is that I just keep, the movie train keeps going and my stand-up train keeps going. And mm. if I can balance those two and stay healthy and, you know, that's that's the goal. Mm -hmm. Now, how long did it take you to write that uh, that script for for the first film? Um, which it was uh, I had it right here. My man, man is a loser. loser. Yeah. How long did that take to write it? Yeah. So under the guild, you get twelve weeks by contract. Oh wow. To write it. That's so it. It's a that was like my that was my like con whatever I that was like the WGA minimum time is twelve weeks. Oh, that's short. Is it, it? it is short, but it's not, man. I'm a fast writer. Mm -hmm. I already had an outline and I already knew in my head what this movie was and who the characters were. So that's just for a first draft. I turned in my uh, first draft in three months. Producers hit me with notes and then they give me like a six week period after that mm -hmm. to kind of clean it up. And then you lock script. But, you know, it's funny, man. Scripts can take three months or they can take a year or they could take a weekend. Yeah. It depends how your, you know, what your work ethic is and like if you have the story already in your head. Mm -hmm. No, that's crazy. Yeah, so that was, it's funny because I wrote it with Stamos, with the lead character's voice super clear in the mm -hmm. beginning. And so Stamos is like, I love this. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in. I thought this is like the best thing, funny. And then the producers who are married and not, and they weren't vibing on the single character as much. They're like, can you please do another pass and like up the, up the, you know, up the relationship of the husband and wife. So they're the bosses, right? They pay me, so I got to listen to them. And I upped, the, I upped the relationship with the husbands and wives in the movie, and I gave the script back to Stamos. <sighs> he said, what'd you do? You cut my part. I'm out. I'm not doing this movie. Really? You need to go wow. back. And so I had to call the producers and go, bro, you, you basically had me write Stamos less lines. Now he's mad. They're like, fine, do whatever he wants. And so <laughs> I, went back, I went back to like my original plan because it was just a very clear comedic voice that I had in my head mm -hmm. uh, and a story that I knew super well. Cause I had married friends and I was single. So it was a story of a, a single guy helping his married buddies get their swag back. And it was not hard to write. It was not, that was not a tough one to write. Really? Wow. 
That that's crazy though, because maybe it's just I mean you've always being a comedian, obviously writing all the time, that obviously helped usher along um, better writing habits and skills over the years. But let's let's take comedy out of the picture. If if comedy wasn't something that uh, you know came to fruition for you at all in your life, do you think there would still be these two opportunities and now a third from what you said you got coming out? Um, do you think these opportunities would present themselves? Were you still confident enough in your writing ability early on that you knew you were going to do something with your writing? I was, I was, man. I was confident because even the short stories that I wrote, like in high school, in mm -hmm. English class, my teachers would be like, I wasn't like a great student in every other class, but like my English teachers were always like, they were just always giving me like really high praise mm -hmm. on my writing. Not that my grammar was so correct. Oh, I was I'm always horrible at that. I was always a character guy. Mm -hmm. And then what really kind of hit it for me was in college, I was in a creative writing course, University of Arizona. I was in this class where I definitely felt like I was maybe like the least smart person in the whole class. Like all these guys were like, they were just like hyper nerds mm -hmm. and like they were quote quoting the classics. They could, you know, tell you about Dickens, Hemingway, you know, Somerset mom. And they just knew everybody. Mm -hmm. And like, and I didn't know any of these authors that I did. I wasn't like well read in the classics, but I wrote this story that was set in Detroit about like this kid who had you know, this interracial story about mm -hmm. this kid who had to go to a, a black kid that had to go to a white school. I turned it in. And when my teacher came back on Monday out of the whole class, he's like, we're going to use this as an example of how to write a story. Oh, wow. And it was my story. And I was like, oh man, that like blew me away because that story came out of me pretty easily. And so I knew I had a knack for writing. So to answer your question, I do believe if it, even if standup wasn't in my world, mm -hmm. I'd still be a writer of some sort. Like I'd either write books or like screenplays. Mm -hmm. I, I would always be a writer. I always loved writing. Wow. And I always had characters' voices in my head, which is a good thing or not. I don't know if it makes you crazy, but... I could get your voice. And that's why I've like I've been brought on to like ghostwrite for different people. Really? Wow. I, I, I can kind of like get your voice down in in a short period of time and then just kind of write through your voice. And so that's just yeah, man. It's like that's a, crazy. It's a good I don't know if I mean I, I don't want to say it's, it's a gift. That sounds like a pompous ass, <laughs> but I just am a good listener. You know what sure. I mean? That's yeah. a, I'm a good listener. I I, I can listen. And then I take notes and I've seen a lot. I've, mm -hmm. seen, I've seen a lot. And so I can kind of write from, I got some original experiences to come from. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, That's good yeah. stuff. Now, over the uh, over the uh, pandemic, before we wrap things up here, I, uh, I wanted to ask you how, being someone from Detroit, um, first off, this is a two-part. So being someone from Detroit, what do you believe is, is the solution to the violence that's plagued the city over the years? And the, the second part would be, um, as, as someone from Detroit, someone who, who, you know, bleeds and breathes that Detroit blood, uh, have, what is your, uh, goal and objective, um, to, to kind of help if you, if you haven't, or if you are going to already, have you, have you done any, like, um, uh, community-based initiatives to help give back to those who kind of supported you as uh, someone growing up there? So I'm shooting my next movie in Detroit. Mm -hmm. It's based in Detroit. 
Um, I've had meetings with guys from Detroit, like Big Sean's team, you know, oh, the rapper whoa. Big Sean. Yeah, man. And these guys are doing big things to bring you know, community initiatives. Mm-hmm. So my goal is to give hope to the kids in the city who have talent that doesn't get tapped mm. and to let them go in there. And yeah, I can say all the shit I want is like a white boy from the suburbs. You know what I mean? Yeah. But what I want to do is just go in there and go, trust me when I tell you, you guys can do whatever you want to do. And just like, however I can breathe hope into it, whether that means like cast like a cool, uh, like, like a cool choir from the inner city to come do a part right. of my movie or cast some of the actors out of the Detroit area, you know, who are less fortunate down there in their high schools or their middle school kids. And just, I just want to figure out a way to give back because it's, it's such a deeper issue than anything I could ever fix. Sure. Obviously, and, but you know what I mean? It's so heavy because my, like my mom taught special education outside Detroit. Oh, God bless her soul. That's, that's yeah, awesome. She's, she's seen like the troubled youth mm. and what even she thinks and what I see from like the different communities I've been a part of, mm-hmm. you got to just give people hope, especially kids. I, I can't talk to the adults. Right. You just have to give these kids something to believe in because when you're surrounded by shit, that's not popping for you. And like, the, it's not open for you. You just have to go in there with a knife and like cut the shit open and go, yo, and bring some people with you who look like them. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm not do it but i'm gonna say it but like go in there and go trust me you guys there's another world out there that you guys can go do that doesn't mean just entertainment but if you have a talent or a gift which thousands of these kids have in detroit Mm -hmm. you gotta just let them believe that it can go somewhere it can be something they can go do bigger better things than what they're just seeing Mm. and so I absolutely plan on with my new movie that is shooting here, hundred percent. I will be reaching into the city to get some community participation. I'm, I'm going to be breathing some life and some money into the city just mm-hmm. from shooting in there. Some of the small businesses we're going to use. That's awesome. I want to, yeah, I want to just get some of the talent and 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 just you know cultivate it and get it and show the world. Absolutely. I mean, man, we had Motown. You know what I mean? Like absolutely. This 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 is a, Detroit, this isn't, yeah, this isn't like a, uh, yeah, never heard of, yeah, never heard of, yeah, never heard of eight mile. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, right. It's a great city. And, it is. You know, it's coming back. It's, it's well, been, just like Chicago. I mean, they get a lot of flack, but it's like, no, no, no. That's like one part of the city. And even that it's like, don't, don't let that cloud, you know, the city as a whole. Yeah. There needs to be work on in every single city you're in. Don't get me wrong there, but it's like, don't let one part. Right. Of, don't you know, the, the puzzle pocket. destroy the image as a whole. Right. Don't, let the, right. don't let the pocket of the South side that's going crazy mm-hmm. be what you think of, of Chicago as a whole. Yeah. You know, it's crazy. So I just want to get back and breathe some life into the city mm-hmm. and do what I can and bring around, bring whoever I can in there to show these kids they can be anything they want to be. Mm-hmm. And that's that that's really it. And just do my part in Detroit. Cause I, I definitely, every city's got a personality. I definitely feel like I got Detroit, you know, in me. Absolutely. Now the one last thing as I want to bring up, as I wasn't sure if you know, if you knew this, but um, it just came into my mind again, I was thinking about it was, did you know, so Tyler Perry's that studio that he has down in Georgia, Brand new studio. Yeah. I didn't know this, but did you know that that studio, that that monster studio that he built, is actually built on the same on the land of a former slave owner and leader of the Confederate Army? Isn't that insane? That is insane. Like this is- dude is like saying "f you." Like he is like the 
like that's crazy that's beautiful and that's that's what i mean I, i'd have to search the ge geography in detroit to see where to put up yeah. a studio but there i love that i love that message i love that him him putting his footprint there and that's actually a model that we would love to do in detroit is mm. to get a studio here it's cost effective the talents here get the incentive back here with the film incentive right that would be something you know he's he's He's, I was about to say he's a master, but, probably, <laughs> but Tyler Perry has mastered the art of like producing content, making viable content out into the, you know, from Atlanta, right. the home base system and just putting it out into the world and just, you know, being, putting thousands of people to work. Absolutely, man. You know? well, hey so man, I, would, I appreciate you yeah. doing this. Yo bro, thanks for having me, man. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, it was great. It. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You take care of yourself, man. All right. Good talking to you, and uh, we'll talk soon. Likewise. Peace. All right. All right, buddy. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed that conversation between me and comedian and director Mike Young. That was great. He was very kind, generous, gave me a lot of his time, and I was very appreciative of that. Uh, if you enjoyed the show and you're new, be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and iHeartRadio. We will see you next time here on The Christian Hansen Show. Until then... Stay safe and be well.